Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, there is no one like you. We seek to hear from you this morning. We know that we come today as people longing to be more like you. We know that we come today flawed, and yet we know that the righteousness of Christ superimposes all of our flaws because of the work of Jesus. So today, we receive the gospel message, not only for the one that is lost, but for the one that is found. They need to renew their mind in that message. Holy Spirit, we ask today that we would end up at the end of this time, more like you. We pray that our hearts will be sensitive to receive what you have specifically for us. We've come not just for an education, but we've come to be transformed. And so we come in light of that. We pray that we would have ears to hear, a mind to understand, and a heart to receive. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for continuing on in this series with us. We are in Romans chapter 3 today. We were looking at the first two chapters last week, and we're trying to deal with this issue of living right. Now, if you're, you know, if you've been growing up and been leading, if you're a husband, if you're a parent, if you're a leader of any sort, you're trying to do the right thing, whatever that right thing is. You're trying to do the right thing as a, as a parent, as a leader, You're trying to do the right thing as a student. And if it's right, well, most likely, it's something you've thought of in your mind you should be doing. Should be better at your home. Should be better on the job. And you are trying. No one I've met just says, man, I am failing everywhere and I love it, right? Everyone is trying. That's ice, praise God, not a gunshot. We're going to work on that. This is a club. Amen? Amen. If you come here that Tuesday night for worship, there's another form of worship that will be happening, all right? Amen. So, but you're trying. And in light of that, there's some right things you do based upon how you see yourself, and there's some wrong things you do, and you know it. And, there, and being that there's some right things and some wrong things, we've got to do something with those wrong things. Because within our minds, no matter if you're a Christian No matter if you're trying to do what grandmama told you to do, what your mama told you to do, what you think you should do, no matter all those different laws, within our minds, the conscious mind we have, there are violations that we make. In other words, we're doing things we know we should not do. And we've got to do something with that. There are habits we want to break. There are attitudes that we want to change. And there are issues of our heart. And we're trying to be better. And it is with that in mind that when we violate that law, whatever it is, what grandmama says, what mama says, what you feel, what the word of God says, when you violate whatever law it is of the heart or mind, you have to deal with the guilt of your heart. Those different violations that you have. 
And what we naturally do is we stuff them away. And within our conscious, we have a closet that we place all those attitudes, all those habits, all that shame. And in this closet, in our conscience, it's where we stuff our guilt. And it is with that that Paul the Apostle is seeking in this message to walk up to that door and expose it. That's what I used to, that's how I used to clean my room, praise God, when I was a child. I would made, I made the room presentable. I made the bed folded presentable. Everything looked good. And my mother made a beeline to the closet. And she was like, behold. <laughs> and what we want to do is we want to make ourselves presentable. And we want to put those attitudes in the closet. We want to put those concerns in the closet. We want to put those feelings you know you shouldn't feel that way. You know you shouldn't think that way. You know those habits are working on the law of your mind. And Paul today is going to basically walk you through exposing that so that you could receive the good news. The good news about the guilt, the good news about the shame, the habits, the attitudes. But he's got to first open that door and let it all come out, spill out, so that you might understand the full picture of what God has done for you. Amen? In this book, in the book of Romans, you have tension. You've got a community. If you remember what I said last week, you've got a community there in the Jews. They had been essentially excommunicated from Rome based upon Claudius, the emperor. And once they were excommunicated, by the time Paul wrote this, they had started seeping back into Rome. And so now you've got a community that had been 100% Gentile for years. And Jews are coming back in, and now they have tensions between Jew and Gentile. And if you look in Romans chapter 1, what Paul is attempting to do is he's saying, if you're a Gentile, you are violating the law of your mind. What he'll say is you suppress the truth. You know there is a God, but you are trying to live a life where you ignore him. And then he says in Romans chapter 2, He's going to say, but oh, if you're Jewish, you still, yes, you have a law that's external, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there's a law, but you violate that law. And so what Paul is actually doing, is he's not only speaking to Jew and Gentile, he's speaking to religious and irreligious. He's saying no matter how much religion you have, no matter how secular you might be, we all have fallen short. We are all flawed. And he's going to unify them by helping them to see we are all broken. And then he's going to lead them to the message of Jesus. Romans chapter 3, this is a personal letter. And what he says in Romans 3 verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now that phrase, under sin, the word in the Greek there essentially is a, a word that's not just talking about physically being under, but it's talking about being under the dominion, under subjugation, meaning 
that sin has domination over our lives. And he's saying both Jews and Greeks. And then he says something uh, later in verse 23, a very famous line, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what Paul is going to do for us, he's going to help us to understand what sin is because what you naturally may presume is that sin is just about being moral or immoral. And the way that he shows sin first here in verse 23 is he says sin first and foremost is about God's glory. He says we've fallen short of that, both Jews and Greeks. When he talks about glory, he's saying you were designed to reflect the image of God onto the world. There's a certain way that God has made you so that you would be able to be the kind of person that God has intended you to be. There is within you a kindness he's intended to come from you, a God-like kindness, a patience that's supposed to come from you, a God-like patience, a God-like honor. And you know that you have broken patience. You know you have broken kindness. You know you are deeply flawed in the laws of your mind. You know you are broken there. And so what's actually happening is he's saying there is no one in this world that does not have the flaw of the soul. No one is comprehensively giving God glory in all who they are. You know, when I did college ministry, I had, you know, I used to bounce in the club and all that. And so we, you know, the the people that were always interesting weren't the people that came from the club. It was the people that would come from church. Because I would be honest about my past. Like, yeah, I'd done some things. You know, I've been, you know, I've been out here sinning, y'all. And the religious people would be like, so I hear you're a sinner. I hear you have a past, right? And the Bible is saying we all have a past. No matter how perfect we may have been in terms of religion, He's saying that none of us are fully and comprehensively living out the glory of God. None of us are who we're supposed to be. And so if you see the image of these lights, if the lights were flickering, we would say they're not working right. If the mics start to go out, we would say, oh, they're going in and out. The mics aren't working right. So there's something in us that knows how a mic should work and how a light should work. It's the same thing in the law of our mind. You know what patience should look like. Because the designer of your soul has given you a conscious mind to understand true patience, and you know you failed. There's something inside of you that understands full kindness, and you know you're not really the kind person you ought to be. You feel that in your soul. You stuff it away, and you have to deal with it. And so this is where Paul says something very interesting. And as a leader, he does this in a profound way. Back in verse 3-9, he says, Are we Jews any better off? Now, you have to understand, Paul, as a former Pharisee, is talking to his Jewish people, and he is saying, are we better than them? And he is doing this as a unifying tone because they're having tensions in their community, and those that have had an external law, meaning they've had the first five books of the Bible, and they've been living it out, they have a natural tendency to believe that just because they've lived a religious life, they presume they're better off than people that have been irreligious. So what Paul says is we, essentially he's saying, we are not better than them because we have grown up in religious spaces. And it is 
utterly important that whenever you're a leader in any form, whether that's at a job, whether that's a pastor, or whether that's a parent, one of the things that the doctrine of sin does is it should humble you and not make you proud. You see, the, 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 re, the actual element there, Paul, who would have thought of Gentiles as dogs, he would have seen them as lesser than. After coming close to his sin, what actually happens is that the knowledge of man's universal sinfulness should humble us and rehumanize others. If you really are aware of your sin, you'd be a compassionate person. Because you know you. And if you know you, you'd be much more gentle with people. And the fact of the matter is, he, there's always got to be. But, but see, because we are proud, we need someone to tell us we're not any better. And if you're a parent, if you're a pastor, if you're a leader, if you're a boss, one of the key things you must always do is that when flawed people come into your space and people begin to notice their flaws, you've got to turn the corner and at some point say, but get, wait, 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 but we're not better. Because when you don't do that, you create a corrosive culture of pride. Because the soul always wants to create an us and them. And we will use anything. We will use religion. We will use ethnicity. We'll use anything to create an us and them. Look what Paul does as a leader. He says, we are not better than them. And he humbles the community. And if you're a leader, you must always create a culture of humility by turning the corner and making sure that no one is building themselves up in their pride and their religiosity or their performance because it is our natural desire and so what Paul continues to do is he's going to clarify what sin actually is. Look here in Romans 3, if you jump to verses 10 through 12, he is, he's been trying to get them to understand that Gentiles are sinners and Jews are sinners. And now he, like a lawyer, he's building a case. And for Jews, what he's doing is he's pulling in Old Testament verses and he says, as it is written, verse 10, chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We get your, Paul, your point, Paul, praise God. No one, right? And when he says over and over again, no one, there's a key phrase in verse 11, no one seeks God. Now, what Paul is not saying is that no one seeks blessing from God. What Paul is not saying is that no one seeks answers to prayer. He's not saying no one seeks forgiveness. He doesn't mean people don't seek gifts from God. He's saying no one seeks God for who he is. And he's saying it is our natural tendency to not want leadership, divine leadership. It is actually our natural tension to want our own personal authority over our lives. And we don't want his leadership, but we do want his assistance. Okay. So he's saying no one seeks God. So this is what you have to understand. You have to reframe how you see sin because sin is not just about immorality and morality. Sin, by definition, is a violation of relationship. 
He didn't say no one seeks morality. No one's doing any good. He says at, at core, we're not actually seeking the person of God. And when you see sin as a violation of relationship, it helps you to rethink and re-see the Bible for what it's actually trying to communicate. Because if you don't do that, you try to find what a person is or what things are happening right and wrong in every story. And not every story is about morality and immorality. You think about the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, they're like, hey, come together. Let's make some bricks. Let's, let's build a tower, you know? And, you know, because we see things as right and wrong, like, look at them building that tower. You see them building that tower? They're making a tower, y'all. There's nothing wrong with building a building that was not sinful. The problem was in verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. There was nothing immoral about building a tower. It was sinful because they wanted a name to go above God's name. And if we're honest, and if you reframe the way that you see sin, you'll understand there's a lot of, in other words, there's a lot of moral people in New York. And if we're being honest, let's not try to judge the morality of the church versus the morality of the world, amen? Because I know people who are way in the world much kinder than Christians. I mean, they killing it on the, on the kindness thing. I mean, just smashing it. And it's something about more Bible verses that create more anger, that, that make you nastier. So I know, I know, I know amoral people that are much more kind and loving. No, the Tower of Babel is not about morality. It's about a name above another name, a name going above God, making a name for yourself. And if we're honest, one of our greatest struggles in this city is trying to make a name for ourselves. One of our biggest challenges in the city is not seeking God, but seeking a name, building a name. And it is hard to submit our lives to God while we build our brand, while we build our name. And if we're honest, we're all trying to build a tower. We're all trying to build a name. We're in a space now where we're all trying to be known. And, in, and our struggle is just to have God give us assistance to build our name as opposed to build his glory. You see, that's what sin is. It's directional. My natural attention is to not seek God, but to seek my own way. It's with that in mind that Paul begins, like a lawyer, building his closing argument. If you've ever seen a lawyer operate, I, I, was, I, was, uh, I got dubbed for jury duty one time, and so I'd only seen court cases on TV or I had seen, you know, TV shows, but I had the opportunity to actually see a court case live. And the closing argument is a thing. Like, it's dramatic. It's got flair. There's a preaching element to it. And so now Paul in these chapters has tried to bring home the fact that man is a sinner, Gentiles and Jews. And what I notice about the closing argument is that this is their best evidence. And in this passage that we're about to look at, this is Paul's best evidence to prove that you have stuff in that closet. Okay? He's about to get this evidence out. 
The glove is about to come out. Does not fit. For the older saints, you know what I mean. For the younger ones, Google is your friend, O.J. Simpson. So this is the closing argument. And here's his closing argument. You don't think you're a sinner? This is his argument. Look at the way you talk about people. That's his like, ta-da, see, that's it. Uh-huh, yeah. And, and listen, you, in other words, when it's your closing argument, this is evidence that's going to put you in a place where you're so exposed you have nothing to say, that you wouldn't even defend yourself. So he says, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He's putting this on display. And so what he, what he says here is the, the imagery, these are all Old Testament images that he's pulling out. But he says an open grave, understand that graves are open to put a dead body in and then they're closed. You might have an open casket, but you don't have open graves. And the imagery is that if you had an open grave, the stench of death would be seeping out. And that's exactly what he says how we speak. Now, you have to understand he's coming from the framework of how God intended. The way that God made us, designed us for his glory, words were meant to be for the flourishing of other people and yourself. Because when you look back at how God created words in the first place, words created a world. Worlds created the sun. Worlds created fish, worlds created water, and all this was for the flourishing of humanity. So when you have words that do not create flourishing for you or others, it creates death. Life, words are meant to bring life and make people better. And whenever you detract from that, you are actually creating death. And he says their mouths are open graves. They are constantly creating death. And he goes more detailed. He says, think about it. Um, an asp is a, is a, it's a snake. And the way that their fangs work is that when they close their mouth, their fangs go underneath their lips so that you don't realize that they actually have fangs. So when he says their venom under their lips, he's saying essentially they look like they're talking kind and sweet, but they are actually deceptive like a snake and venom. What he's actually saying is when we get behind the scenes of the things that you actually say, you are actually very mean-spirited with your words. But you come across very kind. He says, essentially, you have fangs. You perform like you're kind, but behind the scenes, you're very mean-spirited. He's not asking you to agree. He's saying, look at yourself. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you're saying amen. I wasn't sure if there was going to be an amen on this part. Amen. All right, all right. Spirit of the Lord is in this place. And then he says this last phrase, full. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. When he says curses, he essentially doesn't mean the, the words that we've deemed as curses. He essentially means that we speak against people because the opposite of curses is what? Blessing. When we speak about people, we're not just giving blessing. We're generally giving curses. We're definitely thinking about people and we're thinking them in a very detracted, reduced way. And then he says, we're bitter. We're holding on to stuff from days, weeks, and years. And he says, this is my final case. You've been, you stuff that stuff. You have that stuff. That's all. In. He says, my final verdict, my final case, my final evidence is your tongue. James chapter 3 says, 
the tongue is not tameable. No human can tame the tongue. That's why he, that's why Paul is so convinced. This is my final evidence. Look at the way you talk. And you would say, well, James, I'm, I'm very righteous. I've been walking with God a long time. My tongue is just. I want you, for those unconvinced of the evidence, I want you for a month to fast from all forms of deception. I want you for a month to fast, fast from defensiveness. I want you to fast from criticizing others. I want you to fast from complaining, and I want you to fast from gossip. That's going to be a dynamic fast. <laughs> you might as well go to Montana, find a cave, not experience anybody, not deal with anybody. And, you, and okay, so then you're done with that fast. You come back, you said, Pastor James, I did it. I, I, I was, man, I was so kind, wasn't defensive, didn't complain. I said, okay, all right. Now here, now we want to go deeper. Now I want you to not feel that way. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. See, because Jesus says our mouths are only pictures of our hearts. See, that's going to be the impossible part. You might be able to make it a month without being defensive, without criticizing, without blaming, but you can't make it a day much less an hour without feeling that in your heart. And it is with that that Paul looks around in the courtroom of heaven and says, we must find them guilty as charged. This is the evidence. And what we want to do when we think about that guilt is we want to get in front of that door we want to just stand in front of it so that no one sees. We want to point out our accomplishments. We want to point out our achievements. We say, look at all this stuff. Look at, all, look, look at all the good things I said this morning. Look at all the kind things I've been doing. We want to stand in front of that door. And Paul's essentially saying we cannot understand the gospel till we understand exposure. Chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law so that every mouth may be stopped. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord. And the first thing he says is, I am a man of unclean lips. Amongst the people of unclean lips, I have seen the Lord in glory. You cannot see the beauty of God till you see the flaws of man. He says, every mouth may be stopped. In other words, the excuses stop. You must admit, the evidence is in. We're guilty as charged. We're sinners. And we need someone to rescue us. That's the bad news. It's our sin. And it's, in, it's when we understand, when, our, when we realize that we're accountable to God for every word that we've spoken, we know that we're guilty as charged, that we can begin to understand the beauty of the gospel. I want to leave you all with a wonderful picture of what God has done to deal with our guilt 
in the book of Hosea. If you know this story, the story is about a marriage. Hosea is a prophet. And as he's trying to deal with the sins of Israel, the Lord tells Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer. And Gomer is a woman who's adulterous. She's had many sexual relationships. She's had many husbands. And what happens is he marries a woman and ends up having three children with her, only to discover that those kids aren't his kids. (laughs) She, after having those kids with him, she ends up leaving him. And when she leaves him, she ends up with one man, another man, another man. And then after the third man is with her, he sells her into slavery because he doesn't want her anymore. Now, here's the one thing I want you to understand. The book of Hosea is about a whore, not a prostitute. And there's a distinction because a prostitute gets paid but a whore needs affection. And what he's saying is she continues to want relationship except for the one that she's been married to. And in the Bible, it's saying we're like Gomer. We continue to go about wanting relationship. The story reaches its height when Gomer has been sold into slavery And the only way to get her out is you have to bid on her. You have to purchase her. And while most likely she had been stripped naked out in the town square, most likely she is there disrobed by herself and people are bidding on her. A hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, and there comes Hosea. And Hosea begins to bid on his adulterous wife. And as he bids, he says, 500, 600, I'll take her, I'll take her. And he buys back the wife that never wanted him. And because he purchases her, she now goes to someone she's been cheating on the whole time. She's exposed but she's accepted. And that is the gospel. That's the gospel. It says in Hosea 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a a lectin of barley. I bought her. And today you have been using your righteous works, your good things you do to be accepted by God, but you will not understand the gospel until you are exposed first, then accepted. And it is hard because you must be accepted with all those flaws, with all that stuff we've been hiding away. But Christ purchases that with his blood. He does not bid with money like Hosea did. He purchased us with his blood. And he dies on a cross for our sins. 
And today we have been staving God off, trying to impress him, trying to be good enough. And we will never be good enough. We must accept the death of Christ on a cross for our sins that purchase us in his blood. I wonder if you'd stand with me. And today, if you're here and you hear the sound of my voice, and while I was speaking, you were thinking about those things in that closet, the closet of your conscience, the things you've stuffed away. You were thinking about the things that you've tried to push to aside. You were thinking about how you've tried to be impressive towards God. And today, he says, you, he bids on you today. He bids on you today. He bids on you today and says, I want you. I am not impressed with your achievements. I am not impressed with your work. I bid on you. I want you. I want you. And today, if you are at the sound of my voice and you long to be accepted, though you are exposed, your words and your mind have been exposed, today I want to be accepted, though I am exposed. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand? I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Just keep your hand lifted up. Just keep your hand lifted up. Keep your hand lifted up. Keep your hands lifted. Keep your hand lifted. I see that hand. And for all of us, if you have your hand lifted, I wonder if you just come down to the altar today. Come on down to the altar today. Let's make room at the altar. Come on down to the altar today. Come on down to the altar today. Amen. For those of you, you might be here and you're saying, I, I, I know Jesus. I know Jesus, but I need a fresh start. For those of you that are saying, I, I know Jesus, but I need a fresh start. I know I've been exposed and I've been accepted, but I have fallen by the wayside. And I do not feel I am living the way that God has called me to live. I do not live like I'm accepted. For those of you today that want to rededicate your life to Christ and, the, and know that you are exposed yet accepted, why don't you just lift up your hand? Just lift up your hand if that's you. If that's you today, that's you today. Amen. Amen. For those of you that are here in front, I want to pray for you. Some of you may be here just because the conviction of your heart some of you may be rededicating your life. Let me pray for those of you that want to give your life to Christ today. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, you, you see everything about us, yet you still love us. This is a scandal. You know me, yet you love me. You've exposed me, yet you've accepted me. 
And God, I rest in the acceptance of Christ. I rest in the love of God. I rest in the beauty of God. I see I am a man or I'm a woman of unclean lips, and yet you still come close to me. You approach me. In the mighty name of Jesus, for those today that are accepting Christ for the first time, we shout hallelujah with the angels, God. And we honor you, God. We honor you, God. We honor you, Jesus. We honor you, God. We honor you. Because there are many places we could have been today. We could have been stuck in our homes, yet you accepted us, you came to us, and you gave us the message of the gospel. And so right now, in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you. And for those that are rededicating their life and they've accepted, Lord, my words and the meditations of my heart have not been acceptable in your sight. I want to rededicate my lips to you, God. I want to rededicate my mind to you, God. I want to rededicate my heart to you, God, because I've been going the wrong way. And God, I want to come back to you. Clean me up, Jesus. And so for those that have rededicated their life to you, God, we shout hallelujah, God, for the prodigal has come home back to you, God. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All of you that are down here front, I wonder if you'd go with Josh Edney, our executive pastor. Just walk with him real quick. Some of you might already be with us. Some of you might be new. But it's all you just walk with Pastor Josh. Amen. Amen. Just go with Pastor Josh. And for those of you that are here, for any of you that were uncertain of coming forward, we pray that you would make a decision today. But for others of you, let me say this. This altar call is an opportunity, not just for them, but it's for you. It's for you to be on mission with your coworkers and your friends, for your neighbors, for God has not put you in Brooklyn. He's placed you here. And he's placed you here because you have the message that will break yokes in people's lives. And so today, I commission you in the mighty name of Jesus to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell the story to the world, what will break yokes, renew minds, and though they've been exposed by the gospel, they will be accepted by Jesus. I commission you to go out and tell the world because you have a friend, a family member that is ready for the altar. Amen? Amen. God bless you. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.